It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, as always, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here in the front row, behind the scenes, J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Before we get to our guest in episode number 42, we want to thank you for watching and subscribing, and also ask you to subscribe if you haven't yet. Please do so. You don't want to miss any of our upcoming guests that we have scheduled as we count down toward 50 shows here very soon. Right now, though, it's episode number 42, and for that, we talk with Dwight Franey, defensive end, future Pro Football Hall of Famer, grew up in Connecticut, went to Syracuse, was an All-American there, first-round draft pick by the Colts, spent 11 years with the Colts, won a Super Bowl with Indianapolis, and finished up a 16-year career in the NFL, now a nominee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, trying to get elected the first year on the ballot. We talk about all that, including being a dad and also his golf game with some of his buddies you may have heard of. Episode number 42, it is former Indianapolis Colt, Dwight Freeney. First of all, Dwight, thanks for spending some time with us here today. And I know it's a a great time to talk to you because news recently that you're one of the nominees, 129 nominees for the Pro Football Hall of Fame and uh, some more hurdles coming up. But uh, congratulations on, on being on that list in your first year eligible. Oh, man, I appreciate it. I take nothing for granted, man. So, you know, whenever I can be part of any list, anybody voting me in, especially something as prestigious as this, man, thank you. Yeah, a couple, uh, like I said, a couple hurdles to go, and we'll find out in January if uh, you will be enshrined in Canton, which a lot of people think you will. We'll we'll talk more about that a little bit later on, but let's start at the very beginning for you and and how things started athletically. And and you grew up in Connecticut. I know in high school you were uh, a four-sport athlete. What were you growing, what were you playing growing up as a kid? You know what? I played everything, you know, and that's kind of what I stress to parents these days. You know, what worked for me, it, it wasn't just, okay, he's going to be a basketball player, baseball player, football player, just stuff him in that in the entire, his entire childhood. You know, um, the interest, it's very interesting that there's so many different sports that help other sports. You know, hand-eye coordination. You know, you might do some stuff in baseball that might help you in soccer or football or what have you. So for me, you know, it was I played baseball, you know, I played basketball, played football. Obviously, I played soccer. I was in bowling leagues. (laughs) Okay, so I did a little bit of everything and it was great. And I think, to be quite honest with you, like I said, some of the skills that I you know, learned in one sport kind of transferred over to another sport, which helped me. Obviously, football became your sport. And I saw as well that that basketball kind of helped you with that that spin move. Is that where that spin move began for you? Because obviously it's something that, again, has a chance to carry you all the way to Canton, Ohio. No, absolutely. It, It was something that no one ever taught. You know, when I was growing up playing football, it was always told to any defensive player, never turn your back to the football. All right. You know, bad things happen. Well, I, you know, I played basketball and around that time, the and one mixtapes, if you remember, was big during, you know, the late 90s. You know, so for me, it was kind of like, all right, 
I love that. I love playing basketball. I love being creative. How creative can I be to make a play? How do I bring in one mixtapes to the game of football? And that's how it kind of developed and started for me. So it wasn't me watching film, watching another player and trying to emulate him. You know, there was no one really like me. So I went out and just decided to be as creative as possible just to have fun on the football field. And there it goes. That's the creation of the spin move on the way that I use it. And now you see it throughout the entire league all the time. Yeah, certainly a trendsetter. Do you remember the first sack that you got because of that move? I definitely don't. <laughs> I definitely don't. It, it, it wasn't even – I remember the first play I made. It was, a, it was actually, I think, in a championship game in high school. It was a run play, actually, and somebody was coming to block me, and I spun off of the block and made the tech play in the back then. I was like, oh, it actually works. <laughs> you know, so I remember that in high school. Definitely don't remember, you know, in college or, or in the pros, you know, when the first time it worked. I just, you know, it became so natural. You know, I use it all the time in practice. I don't think I ever was surprised when it, when it worked for me to remember and say, hey, my spin move worked, you know. You're like a lot of our guests that, again, played multiple sports, and some of them thought that they were going to maybe excel in a different sport. Was there another sport that you thought this was yours, but obviously eventually it became football? Yeah, it was kind of a, you know, how do I say it, like a transition that kind of like, you know, kind of just all the other options just kind of like passed away at the wayside, you know, and just football became the same focus, the only focus. Now, I played basketball. I love the game of basketball. But I don't think there's any six foot, six one power forwards in the, in the NBA. So at some point, you know, you know, and I couldn't really shoot the ball. I was kind of like a Dennis Rodman, you know, type of player. Wanted to be Barkley, but just couldn't score enough. Had great defense. Um, but like I said, being six one, you're not going to, you know, not, you're not going to get that many offers to any Division One uh, basketball um, schools, right? So that kind of fell away. And then there was baseball, which I was very good at. And I think what happened, and I, I me and my, <laughs> I joke around my father, he ended my baseball career. He was my head, he was the head coach of my baseball team. And, you know, if you have, if you guys know anything about baseball when you're younger, if your dad's the head coach and you have a strong arm, guess what? You're going to be the pitcher. So you're going to sit there. So I, I think to be quite honest with you, I ended up throwing my arm out, you know, being a pitcher in high school. And I was a pretty good center fielder. And I literally basically could not even get the ball. You know, you have these drills where you catch the ball in center field and you had to throw it to third base. There was like a tryout. I think the Cincinnati Reds came to town. And they, <laughs> so I was in there just catching the ball. And I would literally like it'll bounce like five times trying to get to third base. So I, I, I knew my journey was done uh, there. But football kind of, you know, like I said, everything else kind of fell by the wayside and everything just kind of focused right on football. Yeah, you were an All-American uh, in high school. And again, the, the sack started to come. When were you starting to get recruited uh, in high school? When did you think, OK, you know, I could take my talents to, to the next level on the Division One level? I think, you know, around my, you know, my senior year, early in my senior year, um, you know, I was getting, you know, some recognition, 
I, I, I'm not lying when I tell people my thought process, you know, in high school was just be the best high school player I could possibly be. I didn't even think in my mind saying, oh, I want a, a D1 scholarship. You know, it was just, hey, I want to go out there and play the game that I love and play it to my best ability. And I didn't even think about, like, if, if something happened and it just all of a sudden I got a letter. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, if I play good in this sport, I could get a scholarship. You know, so when you start getting those letters and then you realize, wait a minute, it isn't just for fun. You're actually doing it to get to school. And, you know, you could get a scholarship and help your parents, you know, pay for, you know, school so they don't have to pay for school. So that's what it turned into. Uh, the first scholarship letter, I don't know, I think I probably got something from, you know, either Wake Forest um, or Rutgers or something like that. Yeah. Well, eventually it was Syracuse. Yeah. Paul Pasqualoni, the head coach, is a Connecticut guy as well. Was that kind of a, you know, a hook for you that you guys had that common connection of both being from Connecticut? I don't think so. I, I just think that I liked when I went on the visit, I liked, you know, their mentality and their mentality was very similar to the mentality that I was used to in high school. You know, it was, you know, we were, you know, I went to a Boston college recruit trip, you know, recruiting trip. And I went into the locker room, you know, they have all the recruits come in and it was kind of like, you know, the day before the game on a Saturday, and I was in the locker room and guys were just hanging out. You know, you wouldn't even know there was a game. It was just kind of like, da 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 da. You know, oh, yeah, there's a game. Let me put my pads on. Da, 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 da. And I go to Syracuse, you know, same thing, you know, right before a game. And these guys are just juiced up. They're ready to go. They're yelling. They're screaming. They're getting in, in that kind of like, you know, really just engulfed me and just made me make that decision a lot easier and quicker. You know, I said, you know what, that's how we were in high school. We were ready to go. You know, we're going to run through this wall. If this wall wasn't there, you know, we're going to run out to this field and just destroy and cause havoc. That is, you know, what I felt when I went to a Syracuse football, you know, game when I was in high school. And that's kind of what sold me um, from that perspective. Yeah, certainly a really good time for Syracuse uh, during your recruitment there as well. And you know, you were 44 in high school. You had your high school jersey retired. Were you thinking you were going to be 44 at Syracuse? Did you know anything about the, the history of that nothing. number? I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I didn't. I wasn't even big into college football. I really didn't know anything about it, to be quite honest with you. You know, being from Connecticut, you didn't have any college. You know, you're watching football. You're watching the pros. You're not watching any college team because there is no D1 college football at that time, Division One in Connecticut. So for me, I didn't know anything. And I don't even think I asked. <laughs> I might have asked. I don't even remember. But there was no chance that I was going to get number 44. So I ended up with 54. Yeah, 54. Not not bad. You, you've made that one famous uh, on your own accord there. Uh, take us through you know, the start of your career. You had a chance to play as a true freshman. Um, was it kind of learning things a little bit? Because you know, the sacks weren't there in your, your freshman year, but obviously by the end of your career, they, they were. Yeah, it's a, it's a big learning curve, and, uh, and, and you have to figure out, you know, what you're doing 
how 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 your body moves you're you're growing still you're still getting developed your your game is still growing you don't the coaches don't know you you don't know the scheme um so there was a lot of you know indecision let's just call it you know when i you know, got my first year my second year really um but my first year you know they had me playing nose tackle at some point you know i think my first sack or quarterback hit is against Tom Brady. We played Michigan, you know, it was a big play in the game. And that wasn't from a defensive end position. You know, they had me inside playing on a guard and making a move. I made a move inside and, and ended up hitting him. Now towards the, you know, towards my progression and my end of my college year, I started learning how to play the game the proper way. Had a lot to do with Deke Pollard. Deke Pollard was my D-line coach you know, my first year um, at Syracuse, you know, he was a former pro um, coach. He coached defensive backs, but he also, it's funny, Deke Pollard coached with my NFL coach who passed away, John Turlink. Okay, so John Turlink was the, the D-line coach. And Deke Pollard was the defensive back coach, I think, for the Rams. So then when Deke Pollard decided to take the job at Syracuse, I was watching film, NFL film, in Syracuse of the techniques that John Turlink, my future coach, would then teach me. So wow. I kind of had a head start on all, you know, how to play the game of football um, through having Deke Pollard be a part of that journey, teaching me those things, and then Jerry Azanero came in, I think my, my sophomore year, my junior year, and we, he just polished it all up. And then that's how my transition started. You know, I started getting older. I started understanding the game more, you know, experience counts double. It always does. So the more experience that I had, the better I was playing. Did you go into every year at Syracuse with a sack goal in mind? What was that ever kind of something that you looked at every year? No, I, I just wanted to go out there and play as fast as possible and reckless abandon, go out there and change the game. Didn't matter if it was a run. Didn't matter if it was a pass. Um, I just wanted to make plays. And that was my mentality. And that, you know, no different how it was in the pros. You know, I know the sack gets glorified and, and highlighted, you know, but for me, you know, look, I'm, I'm a football player. And that doesn't just mean getting quarterback sacks. You know, that means doing the right things that you need to do for your team to win. So if that means going underneath a block so that my linebacker behind me can make the play, then that's what you do. Um, if it's shedding a, a tight end or a tackle and me making the play myself, then that's what you do. So it wasn't ever in my head, I need to have, at that level, for sure, it wasn't, I need to have five, six sacks this game. It was just go out and have, you know, go out and play, play as fast as you can. You know, and, that, and actually, the truth be told, when I was in the pros, it was the same thing. I never said, you know, I'm going to have six sacks this game. You know, I, I always said, I want to dominate this game. And no matter how many sacks that ended up being, then it is what it is. But I always wanted at least one. <laughs> at least one. Never want to be shut up. 
Yeah, you weren't shut out uh, that often. Again, at Syracuse, uh, a school record, 17 and a half sacks uh, as a senior. You were uh, all Big East junior, senior years as well. So as you're getting toward the end of your career, did you think, okay, the NFL is obviously out there for me. Did you think you were going to be as, as highly picked and sought after as you were when it came around? No, I, you know, I knew, you know, what everyone else knew, you know, and everyone else was saying other than Mel Kuyper, Mel Kuyper had me, you know, projected in the second or third round. I was too small to play defensive end in the NFL, but everyone else, you know, we're saying, hey, Dwight Freeney could go anywhere from the 11th pick to the 30th, 31st pick in the first round. And that's what was being told to me after my senior year, after having a great year. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't have to wait long because my, my for me, it was like, okay, I'm not going to go one through 10, I guess. So 11 would be the first opportunity for me to go based on what they're saying. And sure enough, I got that phone call. Yeah, eleventh overall pick by the Colts back in two thousand and two. What was that phone call like? Who, who who was the first voice you heard on the other end of the line? Uh, it was absolutely amazing. I think it, I think it was Bill Polian. It might have been Bill Polian, the first guy I heard on on the call. Then Coach Dungey. Um, it was just it's life changing, you know, when you're talking about a kid coming from Bloomfield, Connecticut. Um, no one really makes it from our, from where I'm from, you know, to that level. And you go from, you know, struggling, right? You're not, your family doesn't make anything. You're not doing it. You know, you're, you're, you're hoping to, you know, I'm on the Pell Grant, you know, just getting money in just so that I could, you know, eat during college to now I don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. All right. And you and you're you're going out and you're accomplishing one of your dreams that you've always wanted to do was be a professional athlete on the highest level, happened to be football. So I was in heaven. Well, you mentioned that, you know, with the struggles and a lot of student athletes kind of come from those backgrounds. Does it put stress and strain on you as an athlete to to perform and to get to that next level to help out your family and to help? make sure, you know, you have a better life than maybe others did before you? I mean, to be quite honest, when you're in the moment, and for me, it, that wasn't a thought. I wasn't sitting there thinking, man, I better make it to the NFL yeah. so that I can provide for my family. It happened to be that. It happened to manifest into that. It was just me going out, enjoying the game, playing as hard as I possibly can, put as much as I could put into it, and then the results will be the results. And that's what happened. All right. So, you know, maybe there's other players who sit there and think about that stuff and say, you know, and maybe that does put too much pressure on them if they have that thought process. But that's not how it was. Again, an outstanding career at Syracuse. So you get drafted that first year, your rookie year. Take us through that. What, what was your welcome to the NFL moment? When did you you think that, OK, I've arrived here on this level and I, and I can play here on this level as well? Well, I think, you know, my welcome to the NFL moment really was more of a negative moment in a, in a sense. It, it was it was verse. You know, we had a guy, you know, you know, you know, him probably Brad Hopkins. He was an offensive tackle. He was a Pro Bowl guy at Tennessee. And I remember, you know, I pride myself for being one of the fastest guys. 
I can just run around anybody. It don't matter. I'm going 100 miles per hour around you no matter how, you know, you decide to block me. And Brad, he was quick, man. He was quick. He, was, he wasn't like this 330-pound guy. He was about 300 max, 290 for all I know. And he was dancing with me and laughing at me as I was trying to run around the corner and talking trash to me, like, come on, rookie, you could do better than this, you know? So for for, for me, it was kind of like, wow, this, this NFL thing, man, this thing is real. This is, they got some real talent out here and I better step it up and pick it up or I'm not gonna be here long. And I think that's was my first moment where I really realized like, Man, those college moves don't work here. <laughs> There's more tape out on you, more film, more uh, study of what you're doing for, for wow. sure. Absolutely. Well, despite that transition, you still had a great rookie season. You had the, the nine uh, forced fumbles, three of them of uh, Donovan McNabb. You guys played together for a year, right? Was yep. he a senior? You were a freshman. Yes, uh, and then you were the runner-up rookie of the year, the defensive end to, uh, to Julius Peppers as well. It, you know, again, it looks like that transition – became easy for you but but how hard was it going through that first year and, and coming up with some of those numbers well you know it was it wasn't easy there's nothing in the game of of the football and nfl especially that is easy um for me you know my rookie year you know it was a little i guess you would say it was a little easier because no one knew exactly who i was and what i was capable of doing it got a lot harder later um, but it was still going out there, trying to find ways to make plays. And it really comes down to knowing yourself, knowing yourself so that you know what you can do and what you can't do. And then you got to know your opponent to know what you can do and what you can't do. And it's a combination of both. You know, when you're a younger guy in, in high school and college, you can just get away with just athleticism and speed, and that's it, or power, whatever. But when you get to the pro level, you got to know, you know, not only yourself, you got to know your opponent. And when you know both, then you can go out and make plays. How important was it for somebody like you, a young player, to have somebody like Tony Dungy as your head coach? Yeah, I was tremendously blessed to have Tony as a as a coach. I mean, it really, you know, people, people talk about Tony and you hear the stories and they're all true. He's, he's really a great guy. Um, you know, he doesn't yell and scream like all these other coaches. He treats you like a man and, you know, he keeps you, you know, right here, you know, never get too high never get too low. And it's, it, it really, defined, you know, a lot for me as a player in the NFL. I was I was lucky, you know. I I got to be coached by a Hall of Fame coach who was that type of guy, which worked perfectly with me because I wasn't I didn't think I responded well to the guy who would bark and scream at you. Um I responded better with guys like Tony where he doesn't have to yell and scream for me to go out and do my job. You know, you run a, through a wall for a guy like that, you know, just because you feel so bad or you that you disappointed your coach who's done everything for you, you know, that type of mentality. Um, 
so for me, you know, being coached by Tony, it, it was only a blessing and it was lucky and I was lucky to have it. Third year, you lead the NFL in sacks with, with 16. By that point, how did your game maybe evolve? Obviously, again, you still had that spin, but how did you continue to mature as a player? Well, um, I think I may, may have mentioned this earlier is experience counts double, really. Um, and the, long, the more you're doing things, you kind of figure things out. And I think by my third year, you know, I was understanding protections, understanding when I could take chances, um, when I can use a spin move, when I need to go outside and use a speed rush, when do I need to bull rush. Um, so I think around that third year or so, things started to really come together um, mentally and physically, you know, and, and, and it kind of, it, it's interesting, you know, the older you get, you know, it's like your mental, you know, that starts to go up, but your ability as far as your physicality, your speed, your quickness, all those physical attributes start to go down at some point, the older that you get. And you're, and, and the thing is you can still play the game because this is still going up. I, I think around my third year, they were still, they were both going up and it was right around that pinnacle time where I was, everything was just flowing. I could run as fast as I wanted to. I could be as strong as I wanted to. And I can also understand the game. And that's the reasons why, some of the reasons why I played as long as I could, as I did, is just for the fact that, you know, I had a little bit of both. Yeah, 16 years at some point, like you said, your body's going to kind of, start yeah. to receive you there. So your mind has to figure out better ways to do things. Yep. Well, in 2006, it was a, a Super Bowl year for you guys. Going going into that year, did you think it was going to be that type of season? Did everything come together with some of the, you know, several other Hall of Famers that were on that team? Every year when you're playing with Edron James, Peyton Manning, um, Reggie Wayne, you know, Marvin Harrison, those types of guys, you always know you're in. You're always thinking, you know what, this is the year. Since 2003, I thought we were going to win four, five. We finally won in six. I thought we were going to win in seven, eight. Now, it just never happens that way. But when you have so much talent around you, you guys, are in, and you're such a team, um, and you play together, anything's possible. So you always think this is the year. Yeah, it's just it's, it's harder than people – think sometimes, right? Just to go through a season, stay healthy and get to that point. But what was it like for you to to be a Super Bowl champion back in 2006? I mean, there's nothing like it. You know, it's one of those things where you get the ultimate prize. It's like that treasure at the end of the rainbow that you never see, but you know it's there. And you know, you know, it's just kind of like it, the stars aligned. It was one of those moments that you will remember forever. You know everybody that's playing the game won't feel that feeling, and you feel bad for them because they're not going to know what that feels like. Um, it takes so many factors to win a Super Bowl. You got to get lucky, you know, born in the right time, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of that that has to go into it. And when you win, you're on top of the world. There is nothing else that matters. It's it's like, you know, it, it, there's nothing else that matters when you win. There, there is nothing, you know, and, and you and you ride that wave, to be quite honest with you, 
until maybe, I don't know, preseason, you know, training camp maybe. And, and then you wake up, and, ah, there you go. Here's another year. Let's do it again. Yeah, like you said, you had the pieces to do it a lot of years there. And for you, you know, again, you were a key piece, franchise tagged in 2007, and then you signed that extension as well. Was there a chance that that you were not going to be an Indianapolis Colt? Um, no chance. I, I didn't see it happening. I knew it was more, you know, strategy, you know, from a financial standpoint, maybe from the organization. Um, but, you know, I knew where I was going to be. And it wasn't, you know, they, they, they weren't going to let me go and I didn't want to go anywhere. So there it is. Coaching changes. Jim Caldwell comes in. What was he like as, as the head coach and a leader, you know, especially following somebody so regarded as Tony Dungy? He was, he was very similar to Tony, very similar. Jim was an awesome guy. Um, Jim recruited me and I, I never let him forget this. Jim recruited me in high school to go to Wake Forest and told me that I could play both ways. I could play offense and defense if I ended up going to Wake Forest. Really? You see, I never went to Wake Forest <laughs> to see if that was actually true. But when he became a head coach, I said, hey, you know, you got a little more pull now. You know, let's pull the trigger, you know, both ways. Let's do it. Um, but, you know, Jim is an awesome guy. Same fold as, as Tony, treat you like a man, not going to yell at you, cuss you out, none of that stuff. You know, very smart, intelligent coach, man. And it was a blast playing for him. I think that, you know, what hurt the Colts, to be quite honest with you, is when they got rid of him. Um, they got rid of him. They, we were terrible that year. We were 2-14, and 14, all right? And... That was the year there was a lockout. We had no preseason, no preparation. And that was the year Peyton didn't play. So now we have an offensive system, which is all about Peyton Manning making the right calls, getting the offense in the right position, all the above. And now that major piece is not there. And you're asking, you know, guys that had never done it, don't understand it the same way to go out there and do it. He ends up getting fired after that. year, And it was really, it was really tough uh, for me to swallow that. I was like, oh man, he did not deserve it. I get it. The record was bad. But, you know, when you have a guy like Peyton not being there, and you focus everything around Peyton, it isn't like we ran the ball 30, 40 times a game. You know, we passed the ball 30, 40 times a game. And the way that he passed the ball wasn't like how Tom and those guys passed the ball. Peyton was being creative and, and creating the play on the run, and it was a lot more that was going into it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I guess, is that a moment where you really realize, hey, this is a business? You know, and again, it's a performance-based business. Yeah, that was, that was the first time. The second time I realized is when Peyton didn't resign Peyton. When they didn't resign Payton, I was like, oh, I got to get ready. Because if they're going to let Payton go, hey, I, no one else got a chance. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, eventually that did happen to you, unfortunately. You, you know, Chuck Pagano came in. He, he tried to change you to a linebacker. You, you had that adjustment period there. And and eventually, February 2013, you were told that uh, you wouldn't be resigned. What 
what is that like as a player to have the success that you had and then to have it kind of end that way? It was terrible. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was absolutely, absolutely terrible. Um, I actually thought I was getting a phone call from the Colts for them to wish me a happy birthday. I think it was like the day before my birthday, you know, and I was like, oh, they're calling me early to say, hey, happy birthday, you know, be safe. <laughs> so when I got the call and they're saying, uh, Dwight, thank you for everything you've done. You know, um, we're not going to resign you next year. I was shocked. I was shocked. I thought I did enough for the organization for them to at least let me figure out if it was a money issue. Hey, maybe I reduced my salary, figure out a way to retire in Indianapolis Colts. But they see they saw things other, you know, another way. They have, you know, Chuck Pagano, who's a great guy. You know, he had his system and I played it one year. You know, I don't know why they really treat, wanted, you know, we had me and Robert Mathis who played defensive end. We were all pro guys um, at that position. And they changed the whole entire defense to make us linebackers. And, and we were the focal points of our defense and our defense was designed to be a quick four, three, not a hybrid four, three, three, four, you know, type of situation. So you're, you're taking guys out of their natural positions and it may look good on paper, but it wasn't the same. Um, so that's what happened to me. And I ended up having to decide to say, okay, Dwight, are you going to retire or are you going to go somewhere else? I decided to go somewhere else. Yeah, 11 years with the Colts. You retired as the, the all-time sacks leader there, 107 and a half sacks. Robert Mathis eventually patched you up. But uh, so retirement was – that did cross your mind? I mean, because it, obviously you played five more years after that, but retirement was on your mind at that point? Well, not on my mind as far as I'm going to be done. I didn't want to be done on someone else's terms. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be done on my terms, and that's the reason why I kept. Well, again, you, you continue to play. You had some good years, went to the Chargers, Cardinals, Falcons, back to the Super Bowl as well with the, the Falcons. Yeah. So you got to the Super Bowl three times. Obviously, you win it once, you lose it twice. Do you, what do you remember more, the the, the wins or oh, the setbacks? Oh, my God. For me, it's unfortunate that I remember the, the bad stuff more. You know, I, I, To this day, I still wake up you know, thinking about that Atlanta Falcon game. Um, and just shaking my head, like that was in the bag. And when we play, especially against the Patriots, it just it just even hurt even more. You know, maybe it was another team and wouldn't have felt so bad, but it was New England who gave us and gave me so many issues throughout my career. And then we got the Patriots doing it to me again in the Super Bowl. It 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 crushed me. To this day, I'm still not over it. Um, I'm still not over it. You know, we should have won that game. It was a, you know, maybe if we ran the ball more um, and we did some, you know, made some better decisions offensively, made some better decisions defensively, um, just kicked the field goal, we would have been good. Yeah, I think that the Red Sox have the Yankees as the evil empire. Everybody in the NFL has Tom Brady and the Patriots as that oh. evil empire, right? That, Like you said, if we were anybody else – Maybe it's easier to get over, but not with the Patriots. Not for me. Not for me. We had too many battles, you know, the Colts and the Indianapolis, you know, Indianapolis Colts and the Patriots for too many years, you know, for, for me to just get over that. It's it's going to be a nasty taste in my mouth for a long time. 
Well, 2017, Seattle, Detroit, and then 2018, you, you decide to, to hang them up yeah. um, and you sign a one-day contract with the Colts. What, what, you know, did you feel like it, you, know, you mended some fences by doing that, to sign that contract and to end your career as, as an Indianapolis Colt once again? Well, I always knew I was a corner heart. I mean, I played majority of my career there. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it didn't end there. I mean, my playing career didn't really end there. Um, but we all knew, you know, when it came to mentioning me, me, they knew, oh, that's the guy that was on the Colts. You know, so for me, it was always going to happen at some point that, hey, you know what, it would be nice for me to be signed there for a day and then just retire. 16 years when it's all said and done. I mean, and your your buttonheads almost every play. When you look back at it, are, are you amazed that you had such a, a lengthy career as a defensive end in the NFL? No, I, I I was never amazed. You know, I never put limitations on what I thought I would be, could be. You know, I wanted to be the best player that ever played the game. You know, that's my mentality. Maybe fell short, whatever. Um, but it didn't matter. That was what drove me. So no surprises for me as far as how long I played, um, how well I played. I wasn't surprised because I trained my brain and my mind that I deserve to be there or deserve to be one of the best. Well, again, you have been one of the best. And in 2019, you joined the ring of honor there for the Colts. What did an honor like that mean for you? Oh, I mean, you take nothing for granted. And, and those are the type of things that you don't even think about, you know, and, and I didn't even think about the ring of honor. And then I got the call. And I'm like, really? I'm going to ring honor? That's, that's a huge accomplishment. But it's not something that you really think about. You don't sit there and play and say, hey, my name's going to be up on the stadium. Well, at least I didn't. I just went out there and played. And I was like shocked when they said, Dwight, you're going to be on the ring of honor. I'm like, Wow, you know, and I, I like I was surprised because I really was surprised. But if you really think about it, it was silly to be surprised because you would figure that you're going to be one of the guys uh, that would be up there. Um, but it was a tremendous honor, um, and and any any of those accolades, right? That's not just individual accolades; that's a team accolade. You know, all of those things had to do with you know the team, you know what we went through as a team, you know the coaching, making the you know, catering things for certain, for me to do the things that I do, you know, put me in a position to make plays. So, you know, all these accolades that I've gotten in my career has a lot to be said about the team that I was on. Yeah, it always happens with a phone call, right? You've had some good phone calls. You've had some bad phone oh, calls yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. But it seems like more more good than bad. Yes. 125 and a half sacks in your career. Who, who did you enjoy sacking the most? Ooh. Well, that's there's there's two names that come to mind. We got Tom Brady, who I just despised and could not stand just because he played for the Patriots. And when I met him personally, I wanted to hate him so much, but he's such a great guy. I just couldn't I couldn't I couldn't bring the hate to a whole nother level. You know, after I met him, like, oh I really he was exactly the the a-hole I always thought he was, now I'm really going to get him that. It became like, oh, God, he's such a good guy. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I got to hit him lightly, I guess. You know, it was one of those things. Uh, but Tom is one guy. And David Carr, David Carr was always a guy I loved to hit. And it wasn't David's fault. 
me and David came out the first year of the same year. David never had a real strong offensive line, offensive system. And I used to just tee it all. I mean, he'd tee it up and knock it out the park while playing against David. Who was the toughest to sack? Who, who kind of gave you fits? Uh, I think um, Steve McNair. I would say Steve McNair was one of those guys where he was just a, like a, I don't even know, he was like a superhero back there. He was, he was a guy who could throw all the way downfield and destroy you guys. He could run and get, you know, 10, 15 yards if he needed to. And then when you came out to hit him, he was just so country strong. You would hit him and you feel like you're hitting a brick wall. So it wasn't like, it was never an easy challenge to get Steve McNair, man. He was one of those guys where I think he was underrated his entire career. I think if he played for another organization that had a system that was really catering towards him, um, he would have had the numbers that you see all these quarterbacks have. Yeah, and he's on that list of uh, nominees for the Hall of Fame coming up this year as well. Hey, how about on the flip side, offensive lineman, who, who, who challenged you? Who talked the most trash to you? When, when you know before that ball was snapped, I'll be honest with you. There was only one guy. And I don't barely remember his name. He was a rookie. He played for Cincinnati, and I was playing. I was sleepwalking through the first quarter, and all of a sudden, this young guy started talking trash to me. The first, only guy that I ever remember ever in my entire career talked trash to me, and it woke me all the way up. I ended up having like two and a half sacks since then. I used to bull rush him, slam him to the ground, all types of stuff. You know, uh, completely woke me up. Um, but to be quite honest with you, no, I hadn't had a lot of experiences with offensive line talking trash. I know now you you play a lot of golf. How, how did you make that tradition or transition? Obviously, you retired, but but how did you go from football to golf? And had you played it much, you know, until your retirement? Um, you know what, being in Indianapolis, you know, for me, um, I wasn't you know a Midwest guy. Didn't know anything about the Midwest, and for me, really, to stay close to the Midwest during the off season was golf, right? Cause there really wasn't much for me to do if it wasn't for that, right? I'll be leaving the city every five seconds. So I picked up the game of golf, really picked it up then and loved it. I loved it. I, I, it's one of those games where it's nobody's fault, but yours. When you don't hit that ball and it's sitting right there, you have no one else to blame. And that taps into that competitive edge that I have, that the competitive fire that I have that always burns, you know, and, and, and it never is going to go away. So kind of to quench that thirst is the game of golf. I saw you say golf kind of brings people together and it brought you and your all-time favorite, Lawrence Taylor, together, right? Is that when you met him the first time? Absolutely. Shaking it in my boots. I was... I, you know, I just kind of picked up the game of golf. Not, to, you know, it may have been 2003, 2004, and I just picked up the game. I got invited to the Michael Jordan Invitational um, Golf Event in the Bahamas, and you know, went out there, didn't know anything. I didn't know who I was playing with. Looked on the tee sheet, found out I was playing with my childhood idol Lawrence Taylor, and I had no chance from that moment to hit that ball anywhere that I wanted to hit it. Now, normally, I couldn't hit it anywhere that I wanted to anyway, but now I really had no chance to hit it anywhere that I wanted to. And we had a stand full of fans and we had TV cameras. It was a disaster other than the fact that I was playing with Lawrence Taylor, you know, my childhood idol. And to this day, he still calls me hack, which is okay. I know you said too, that the saddest day for you was when he retired. You remember that moment when you when you heard the news that your favorite oh. player was not going to be playing football anymore? 
Cried like a baby. Cried like a baby. Like someone did something to me personally when he retired. I didn't even realize people retired. You know, it's one of those things you don't even think about it until it happens. You're like, what do you mean you're not, you're retiring? I couldn't believe it. Like I couldn't turn on the television and watch Lawrence Taylor play football anymore. I was just, it was that, that's how much it meant to me that he was out there playing. You admired him. I'm sure he maybe admired your game as well. Do you guys ever talk about that? Does he has he given you compliments of your game and, and what he liked about what you did on the field? Uh, we don't really talk. We just normally when I see him, we talk golf, we laugh, we have some jokes about that, and we keep moving, man. You know, I think he's kind of like me in a way where, you know, that you know, we don't really talk about that type of stuff. You know, we've been talking about that type of stuff our entire careers. So for me, it was just more or less just hanging out. And he was hanging out, and we're going to hit this golf ball and hang out. And I saw, too, you're also good friends with Michael Jordan. You golf with him a lot. I mean, yeah. you've got to pinch yourself at some point and be like, you know, I'm just this kid from Connecticut, and look who I'm hanging out with. What is it like yeah. when you're playing golf with Michael Jordan? No, it's, it's, it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing. You know, I was, I was another childhood, you know, hero of mine, um, which I would never admit to him, but I think I cried when he retired. <laughs> It was just, I think, um, just having that type of relationship, he's like a big brother to me. Um, you know, I live about 10, 15 minutes away. I would have not, I mean, some. I guess you got to pinch yourself once you think about, you know, this is a guy that you idolize and he's that that guy, you know, that everyone loves to emulate and wants to be the GOAT, right? And he's just one of my boys. He's just a guy that, you know, we go out, play some golf, you know, and talk a little trash and we go home. Well, you cried over the retirements. Did you cry when, when was it your daughter when she was born? You're a dad now. What, what's what's uh, that been like for you? Oh, I've been crying. I, I, I've been crying, trying to figure out how to change a diaper. <laughs> She's running around the house, and every corner that I see her running, I think it's just this is going to be it. Every corner I see her running down the hall, I'm like, oh, this is it, man. She's going to trip, and she's going to stumble, and she's going to hit that corner that I don't have protected. So every day I cry where, but uh, no, it's been amazing. She is, you know, Olivia is just, has changed my whole perspective on life. You know, just to know that that somewhere in there is a little bit of me and a little bit of my wife and that's what happened. And, and she's just a ball of energy. And, uh, you know, I just want to make sure I lead her down the right path and, and doing the right things. Well, she didn't have a chance to see your career, but may have a chance to see you get enshrined potentially this summer coming up. What would it mean to you to have her there and, and just to to be part of, you know, that group, the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Oh, I mean, like I said, it, it's an honor to even be mentioned in, in that type of breath of those guys who are enshrined. You, you know, you, there's things that you don't really think about. And, you know, for my daughter to sit there and watch me, you know, get to the top of the mountain, hopefully, God willing, it will be something that I'm definitely going to tear up about. It's just one of those things where, you know, it's an amazing accomplishment. You didn't do it by yourself. Everybody's going to feel that was part of your journey. It's all going to feel that same type of energy and that same type of feeling that they made it. And I want it to, to be that way if that ever happens, because, you know, it, it takes a tribe. And it's not just you out there it takes other people to help you get to where you need to get well and again you you have a chance to do it your first year eligible as well obviously you want to be in the hall of fame no matter what probably but 
to do it in your first year, does that add another layer to it for you? I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, if it wasn't for people talking about it all the time, you're our first ballot, you're our first ballot. I'm like, all right, great, thank you. I mean, I don't know if I am or not. And it's really, it's just some people's opinions on what that is. Now, I don't know, you know, there's great Hall of Famers that aren't first ballot, awesome players. If I am, if I am, and if I end up being first ballot, great. I'm, a, you know, awesome. Thank, thank you. But if I'm not, and I ended up, you know, my second, third year, fourth year, whatever, then it's also going to be that same feeling of just being great and grateful that I'm actually in this building and enshrined. It's got to be hard not to think about it, and and maybe think about that speech in that moment. Have you thought at all about that, and maybe who who will present you when you're up there? Ah, uh, you know what? I hadn't had much thought other than the fact that I, you know, I wanted my my D line coach John Turling. He passed away last year, so you know, if that moment ever comes, you know, I got to think about who's going to be that guy. Um, but to be quite honest with you, I don't like. I'm never a guy that, that likes to cat, you know, count their chickens before they hatch. I'm just, you know, stay focused on whatever's going to happen in front of you, and if it happens, you deal with it. Then. Yeah, we don't want to jinx it. Again, as a Syracuse alum, we, we want you to be in there as well. And, and and look at it from that perspective. Look at the history of Syracuse football. You know, to to be among some of those elite, what what does that do for you? What does that tell you about again the what you did for Syracuse and what you've done after your your playing days with the Orange? Well, you know, those before me paved the way for me. All right, and and even no matter where I was. You know, whether it be in Syracuse, Indianapolis, you know, those veteran, those guys taught me the ropes. And, you know, I just hope that I did right by them. You know, I went out there and performed and played the game the right way, respected the game the right way, and left it all out there, just like how they did. And if I'm ever, you know, enshrined, you know, that also is because of them. One last thing. Okay, so you were going to be – Two-way player at Wake Forest, lead, lead blocking fullback. What was what was your uh, future going to be? Do you think? I was a running back. I was a tight end and a defensive end. I was a t I played two ways in Bloomfield High School, all right, where I grew up. All right, I played a tight end and I played defensive end, and I love both positions. Um, so if I ever got an opportunity to play tight end, I swear at least I'm gonna score one. All right. Now you might only get one from me, but I'm gonna score while it's pretty quick. Now the question is, did I well, I gotta catch the ball? <laughs> right? but, you know, I don't really practice catching the ball anymore. If I'm catching the ball, there's something wrong. They say, Oh, it's why you don't have any interceptions. Well, if I have interceptions, then that means I'm probably going the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, a lot of guys are on defense for, for one reason, right? They can't catch the ball on the offensive end, but yeah. uh, yeah. Certainly, Syracuse fans are, are happy you went there, and, and Colts fans are happy you were drafted there. And, and again, uh, I'm sure you've got some big things coming up in Canton, Ohio. And, and I know a lot of folks are rooting for you to get there this year, first time on the ballot. It'd be certainly amazing. So, Dwight, I appreciate your time. Great stories, and wish you nothing but the best. And, and hope that we're seeing you give that speech here uh, next summer. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. You take care. Hey, great stop there from Dwight Freeney, future Pro Football Hall of Famer. Maybe as soon as next summer, he'll be enshrined in Canton, Ohio. Our thanks to Lindsay Waterhouse for helping arrange that interview for us. And again, our thanks to you for watching. 
Be sure to subscribe. More great guests coming your way as we continue to count down toward our 50th episode later on in the fall. Again, we thank you for joining us in the front row with Mike DeCaro. Have a great day, everybody.